You are listening to the Life Community Church Sermon Podcast. Life Community is a church for the city, making much about the name of Christ. This podcast is available through all major platforms, including Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and Google Podcasts. If you enjoy and are challenged by our teaching, we invite you to subscribe to the channel on whatever platform you choose as we seek to anchor ourselves to the unchanging truth of God's Word together. Thanks for listening. Welcome to Life Community Church. You may say, Steve, tell me about Life Community Church. Well, okay. We are a church for the city and making much about the name of Christ, and we strive to live out those mission statements by the values of practicing love with everyone always and giving more than what makes sense and chasing after the likeness of Christ in every corner of our lives and anchoring ourselves to the unchanging truth of God's word. That's who we are. That's what we want to be. That's what we strive for. Just a few announcements for you today, things to be thinking about next week. Children's ministry reopens, and so maybe that's exciting for you. Uh, just know you're, you're welcome to, to leave your kids in here. I'm okay with that. Uh, but you're also welcome to use our children's ministry, so that will be open uh, at least, you know, 1030. We're working our way towards Sunday groups here soon at 9 o'clock. Second thing to, to note is that uh, we're having another Kahoot night, which is a hoot, kind of a Kahoot, if you would say. It's an online quiz, uh, interactive. You and your families can get around the screen. I'll host it. We'll have some fun, lazy, lame jokes. Uh, you won't laugh, but it'll be still fun for me. And so that's the last Thursday of every month at 6.30 p.m. You can go ahead and text the word quiz to 824-2252, and that link will come to you eventually on how you can join in that. Thirdly, uh, our feast is coming up here soon. We are doing the feast in person on the 28th, which will be Palm Sunday, and so right after service we'll have a meal. We're going to need help with that, so if you're available to volunteer, uh, we would love for you to sign up at the information desk. We're not going to serve food the way that we normally did. Uh, we're going to put them in little to-go boxes, and we're actually going to come to you at your tables and give them to you, so that'll be a little bit different for you, and we need help filling those. And then lastly, uh, Easter. Easter's here. Uh, we're going to walk into uh, next week talking about, obviously, no, not, not next week. Easter is coming sooner, but not that soon, Steve. Like, uh, we're going to have a Palm Su- Sunday service, Easter, and then we'll talk about the Ascension. But Easter is two, Sunday, or two services at 9 and 10.30, just so I know you got some options there so we can keep people spread apart and enjoy um, just celebrating the resurrection. All right, we're going to head into the Beatitudes. This is actually going to be sort of the last week in this text in Matthew 5, 1 through 12. We're actually going to visit what it means to be salt and light next week. So this is our last time reading these statements of blessing together. And so uh, let's do it with emphasis this week. You can join us in the Gospel of Matthew, starting in verse 1. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and he went, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sakes, Sake for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Let's pray. 
Father, we just come before you today and we believe that your word is living and active. Um, so Lord, we just pray that you would take my meager efforts here, Lord, and that you would multiply them through your spirit, that you would bring conviction through your word, that you would bring life and joy through your spirit, Lord. And so we just come under you today, Lord, and say, guide us, direct us. We love you and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you're a young child in here, you probably know, know the joy of your parents saying it's bath time. If, if you're five, six, seven, eight years old, the idea of getting a bath is exciting to you. I know that because I have young children. But once you get 12 and your parents say take a bath, it's a little less enthusiastic, right? And then if you're 40 and your mom tells you to take a bath, <laughs> you're kind of like, that's weird, right? <laughs> Today we're going to be talking about what it means to be clean. Is there still a desire in God's heart that we'd be pure in front of him, that we'd be clean in front of him? And so I'm going to give you five words today, five words to listen to. The words are worship, tension, adoration. There's a compound word here, single-hearted and unmixed. You listen for those words today. If you were living in the time of the Israelites around the time of Jesus and before, purity would not have been a vague idea to you. It would have not been some sort of subjective truth or suggested practice. One's entire life revolved around being clean. Being clean physically meant that you were holy. And to be holy was to be set apart. And to be set apart was to be pure physically. And so in the time before Jesus and at his time, there was a stark line separating that which was profane and sacred, what was pure and impure. And of course, God himself is the author of those commands. God gives these Levitical laws, these purity rituals that you'll find in the book of Leviticus in our Old Testament. They are commands about proper cleaning of food and animals and objects and people. They're instructions for purity. They're commandments that kind of demand exclusion from certain behaviors and people and practices that were deemed to be unclean. Instructions on how you washed your hands and how you bathed. God wanted his people pure and he wanted them clean. And it reveals God's goodness and kindness to creation. And it does so in two ways. There's probably other ways, but there are two ways that I see. Uh, number one is this. If, if we have 21st century eyes, which we do, looking back on these laws in Leviticus, we see the goodness of God in his desire for his people's preservation. God wants to preserve his people. Today, we know the dangers of invisible germs and bacteria and viruses. We know that they can wipe out one's existence. I mean, we're in the midst of a pandemic. But before God revealed those things to the mind of humanity, he's instructing his people to wash your hands, bathe, be pure in your practices. Why? Because God loves his people. And the preservation of his people was paramount to him. It was paramount to preserve his people so that, as Paul writes, that in the fullness of time, God would send forth his son. Preservation mattered because it was in the Israelites that God would send his very own son. And the second sort of idea and display of goodness in these purity laws that are given to us by God is that God, from the beginning of time, was seeding into his people and to us that you're not pure. You're not pure. You're not clean. You have sin. You need to be washed. 
You need to be made right. God is seeding into our, his people, our people, us, the reminder that we are impure in relationship with God's favor and being called his own. We need purity. We need cleansing. And that reveals our deep need for a Savior, a Christ, for God's own intervention into the world to redeem and save the impure and the unclean. Jesus, or not Jesus, but the author of Hebrew writes it this way in Hebrews 9. This is lengthy and it has some ideas about goats and bulls. We'll get there. But when Christ appeared as the high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once and for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats or calves, but by the means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of of defiled persons with ashes of heifer, of a heifer, sanctify for the purification of the flesh. How much more would the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purifying our conscience from the dead works to, say, to serve the living God. What he is saying is, if you rested and felt good about the practices in the Old Testament, about your purification through the buds of goats and bulls, how much better is it that the pure God of the world, this holy Perfect Savior sacrificed himself and gave his blood for you. He cleanses you. These purity laws that, that God gave us in Leviticus were simple instructions to guide and teach humanity until something better came along. And Paul writes of it this way in Galatians 3. He says, So then the law was our guardian until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith, other translations has it that, that the law was our schoolmaster until Christ arrived. Paul reminds us of this image of somebody watching over us, guarding us, keeping us from doing real damage to ourselves until Christ, until justification came by faith in the holiness and the purity of Christ. And so this all serves as a little background work as we enter into the gospel of Matthew in chapter 5 in these Beatitudes. Because at the time of Jesus, ritual Purity laws would have not just been a practice of the people, they would be an obsession of the entire nation. The entire nation of Israel was obsessed with being clean, and that obsession made it possible for people to be oppressed by them. Obsession led to oppression. Countless laws were made that reinforced the idea of purity. And if you didn't observe them, if you were deemed to be unclean, you were essentially cut off from all religious life. And if you were a Jew in that day, your whole life was religious. You were essentially barred from life itself in general. Those in power began to use the purity laws to reinforce their power and to keep other people from it. They used the purity laws to enrich themselves and bring a measure of celebration to themselves. And so it makes a whole lot of sense that Jesus has consistent clashes with the religious rulers of the day. And certainly that is present here in the Beatitudes. And it, he has those leaders in mind when he says this blessed statement, blessed are those who are pure in heart, for they shall see God. Jesus speaks that if you want to see God, if you want favor with the Lord, if you want oneness, it will be about your purity. But it will be about your purity in heart. 
not on the outside. It won't be about how good or pure you look. It will be in the heart. St. Augustine writes this. He said, God bestows more consideration on the purity of the intentions with which our actions are performed than our actions themselves. But the reality is, is that those who are opposed to Jesus in that time, they would have known this desire for God's purity in heart. They would have been familiar with the scriptures. They would have known his earnest desire for purity in here. They would have read from 1 Samuel, the prophet saying, but the Lord said to Samuel, do not look on his appearance or on the heights of his stature because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as men, a man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Solomon in all of his wisdom in Proverbs 21 he says, every way of a man is right in his own eyes, but the Lord weighs the heart. David writes in Psalm 51, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit in me. Certainly this would have been the prevailing knowledge of the day, but it was not the prevailing practice. And why? Because purity is the fruit that grows from one's hungering and thirsting. And if in my life I have not rooted myself properly in poverty of spirit, knowing who I am before a holy God, if I have not mourned how I have distorted and belittled his creation and name and experienced his grace and his mercy and his love, I've tasted that and I can walk in meekness trusting the Savior. Humanity in their brokenness will always hunger and thirst for themselves. And that is what precisely makes this phrase Blessed are those who are pure in heart, for they shall see God. So enormously freeing, because it frees me from the bondage of effort and law-abiding. But yet, as freeing as Jesus' statement is in the face of oppressive purity laws, it's just as or more so enslaving. Because if it were just in appearance, there's a chance that I could look clean. But if you're talking about my heart, that is one bridge too far for me to fix. Which is exactly why the Israelites at the time preferred appearances. Because you could quantify or measure what was good or bad, sacred or profane, pure or impure. And as silly as that practice was, like we're no better than they. We might not have to wash our body before we stepped into this church, which would have been a command. But we distort the desire of God's purity in our hearts. You could say it this way. The Israelites put the importance on the wrong part of this beatitude. They put their emphasis on purity. They had the right standard, but they had the wrong target. Today, it could be said of us that we put the emphasis on our heart, but we've chosen the wrong standard. We have the right target but the wrong standard. That would be true of us today. Today, being pure finds itself with the definition of beauty. Beauty is in the eye of the beholder. And today we walk purity into the same classification, that purity is in the eye of the beholder. Purity gets to be determined by my own preferences, trends, desires. Once purity is defined by humanity, let me illustrate it this way. 
in the history of the United States, the egg that is sold most often, far and away, is the white-shelled egg. And there are reasons for that. There's economic reasons. Uh, don't ask questions why I know this. It takes, long, it takes more money to raise a colored feathered chicken because they're bigger than it does a hen with white feathers. But there's also consumer preference, right? People buy white eggs because they're the definition of sterile, clean, pure. But today, brown eggs are in vogue. And why are brown eggs in vogue? Well, because we've morphed the standard of purity from color to origin. How were those chickens raised, we asked. Are they farm fresh? Were they cage free? Being organic becomes the focus of purity, not color. And here's another wrinkle. Like if you have visited Europe or you're from the UK or you're listening to this and you're in Europe, which is highly doubtful. Maybe, I don't know, maybe we're big in Luxembourg. I don't know. All of what I just said would have been disgusting and impure to you. Because you would never find an American-type egg on the shelves in Europe. Why? Because no matter the origin or no matter the color, we want our eggs washed and sterile. We want them pure and cleaning. But in Europe, they don't wash their eggs. They don't wash their eggs because it increases the chance of contamination. You're removing the layer that the hen has put on the egg to keep the outside contaminants from the inside. And not only would, does it increase the risk of contamination, it decreases the shelf life. Unwashed eggs actually last about a month longer in your refrigerator. Have you ever been so excited <laughs> right, to learn about eggs? <laughs> I mean, consider this. If you went into a restaurant, and at a fancy restaurant, you want to look in the back and see a chef in stark white clothes, clean, unblemished, unspotted. Why? Because that invokes professionalism and excellence. But yet if you went to a baseball game, and at the end of the game you saw a player and his jersey was all white, no grass stains, no dirt on it, you would say, what? Man, that guy's lazy. He must have not played very hard. He must not be very good because he didn't get into the game. And I tell you all these things because we can laugh at them. But there is a deep, profound danger in creating our, our own standard for what purity really means. A danger that robs us from the flourishing and joy in front of God. And a destruction and rejection that will happen in its absence. Do I get to change the standard of what God deems as pure? Or does what God deems as pure get to change me? That is a deeply fundamental question behind God's desire for human flourishing. Jesus goes on in the Gospel of Matthew to say this in chapter 15. He says, But what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, and this defiles a person. For out of the heart comes evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defile a person. But to eat with unwashed hands does not defile you. When we begin to change the decree of what God deems as being pure in heart to being nearer to being true to heart, 
to being true to my heart. When we take that which Jesus says defiles us and we begin to believe that's what defines us, we are walking into utter chaos and madness. That is the definition of insanity and it grieves the Father. From the beginning almost, God has in all of his goodness, all of his kindness, and all of his love been seeding into us and to his people, lovingly driving. You're not pure. You're not pure. You have sin. I want peace with you, but you're not clean. You need to be set right. You need to be washed. And over and over again, God's people in the Old Testament, in that day, they sought purity with the wrong target. But today we say, what target? I'm good. Because purity has become far more about me getting nearer my best life through self-expression than it was ever about being truer to the God who made me in creation. So let us remind ourselves today that there is a standard. And that standard has a name, and his name is Jesus Christ. And Christ did not lower the bar of cleanliness and purity The doctrine of grace, which is so important to us Christians, that God saved us by grace through faith. That grace is not a loosening of God's standard. It's not an allowance for uncleanliness. Grace is the oxygen that sparks and rekindles the fire for our thirst and our hungering for righteousness. It turns our acts of purity from acts of self-importance and effort to acts of adoration and worship. Because Christ, in him, we have perfection. We have all right standing in front of the Father through him. And as an act of love, he gives it to us. He clothes us in his perfection and his righteousness. The scripture says that we are hidden in Christ, that when God sees us, he sees his son. But not only that, through Christ, God adopts us as his very own sons and daughters, heirs to the throne. Purity is not about my effort to look clean because I'm not. It's about worshiping the one who is clean with all of my heart. Purity becomes the fruit of my adoration. And Paul says it this way in Philippians 3. He says, not that I have already obtained this or I am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Our purity, or the cause of our purity, isn't self-seeking. I don't choose purity because it's going to make a better life for me or make my life wholer or more complete or less complicated. If my aim is purity for my sake, I will always fail in that. Purity must always, at its core, center around adoration. Not for my sake, but for his I desire purity because he deserves my adoration. He deserves my worship. And by my purity, I show my adoration. It is worship that takes our eyes off of ourselves and puts it onto him. That we, as Paul says, make it our own. As he has made us our own. The aim of purity is to reflect the glory of of Christ to be conformed into the image of Christ. It's not to conform Christ into my image. Soren Kierkegaard, not to be confused with the Soren angry eye from the Lord of the Rings. Okay? And when anybody walking here said, what did the angry eye say? 
Soren Kierkegaard, Danish philosopher, theologian, said, purity of heart is to will one thing. Purity of heart is to will one thing. The desire for purity is no more or no less about being single-hearted. Unmixed in devotion, desiring solely one thing, the renown and the glory of Jesus Christ. To reflect his image and his goodness through my purity in the world. Purity begs me one question. Christ, does this love you? Christ, does this bring you glory? And don't mistake that this to be about a physical purity, that others see that you have it all together, that all your kids are in a line and they're listening, that you got all your checklists done, that people would see you clean and holy and pure. Don't make purity into something about your physical nature. That's not God's desire for purity. The purity that God desires is that the world would come and see us and come to know that in all things we find him to be sufficient. That in everything that he's sufficient. Not that we're perfect, but he's sufficient in everything. And so as a believer, we lay down our impurity. We lay down our unclean thoughts, our impure habits, our impure desires day after day, imperfectly, not mastering it, but consistently, faithfully, not merely out of obedience, but out of worship to do these things for you, Christ, because you have made me your own. And listen, we do a good job as Christians of sort of labeling what it is that is clean and unclean, what we think should be conformed into the image of God and what should and what, what is okay and what is not okay. But the reality is, is that Christ bid us to come and die. He bid us to come and die to give it all, to surrender it all to him. Not just the sins or desires that we deem unacceptable. Not just the things that we have trouble with people saying, like things that I was made, I just made this way. But every desire, every bad part of us, and every good part of us, there is not a part of us in this world today that God would say to you, you're good there. I don't want to be a part of that. Every part of us, surrenders to the Lord. Sam Alberry, who's an author, he's a pastor, he, he writes this in one of his books. He says, but the fact is that the gospel demands everything out of all of us. If someone thinks the gospel has somehow slotted in their life quite easily without causing any major adjustment to their lifestyle or aspiration, it is likely that they have not really started following Jesus at all. To be gospel-centered people, Christ lovers, is to be in communion with God and with others in a selfless, self-giving, self-sacrificial relationship. That his believers would strip themselves of all pride and all desire, everything for the glory of God. To bear an image here on this earth of what is true of the image of the triune God in the cosmos. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit in perfect harmony, in selfless love and deference to one another. Separate but indistinguishable because of their perfect love for one another. Believers, we are to image that here. And we do that through worship and adoration, giving to God all that we have and to each other selflessly. That is God's desire for human flourishing on this earth. Selfless, self-giving, self-sacrificing relationships with one another through purity in heart.
not masterfully, but faithfully. And to close, Jesus says to the pure heart, they will see God. There will never be anything better in your life than seeing the glory of God. In heaven, since we will be free of sin, we will see God in unveiled glory in its fullness. And that will be more pleasing and spectacular in sight than anything that you have known or experienced or could imagine on this earth. It will make the martyr and the sufferer say it was worth it. It will make all that we let go of be considered worth it. No mere earthly pleasure can even begin to measure up to the privilege and ecstasy of an unhindered view of the divine glory of God. We will be all struck by his glory, by a direct experience of his holiness. John MacArthur writes this, and I'll just read it to you. Virtually all of our spiritual sight in this life is is meditated to us through the word of God or the work of God in providence. We see images and reflections of his glory. We hear echoes and reverberations of his voice. But there will come a day when God himself will dwell amongst us. His glory will no longer be inferred by lightning or mountains or roaring seas and constellations of stars. Instead, our experience of him will be direct. His glory will be the very light in which we move. And the beauty of his holiness will be tasted directly like honey on the tongue. There will be nothing more fulfilling than to experience in our sight God's glorious face in eternity. And that is the goal and the promise of purity, both in eternity and in this life on earth, to be near God, to worship God, to adore God, to strip ourselves of everything for his name, to see him, and to know his splendor and grace. Would you pray with me? Father, will you, in these moments, renew our heart? Will you refresh our understanding of what it means to be pure in front of you? Lord, don't let us make this about looking like we have it all together. Will you make this about us finding you to be sufficient in everything that we have? That we would heed the call to come and die. That we would strip our everything, all of our desires, to be in a selfless, self-sacrificing, self-giving, glorious relationship with you and others. For your glory, not our own, Father. Lord, you said that we are blessed in doing it. We love you, Jesus, and we pray this in your amazing name. Amen.